If you weren't here last week, Bob Walls taught on the Father. And it was incredible. And so um, if you've been around church for a while or um, around a Christian circle, you, you might have heard the term the Trinity when referring to God. Um, and, and so I know this is kind of a complex idea and kind of big. And so Mo and I thought, hey, let's take three weeks to kind of just explain who God is. So let's understand who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Spirit is. And so Bob did the Father. He did amazing. So if you haven't listened to it yet, it's online or on our app. You can listen I get to do the sun, and Mo next week is going to do the spirit. So it's amazing. Um, but real quick, I, I want to say, I think that a lot of us have this kind of conception, um, or that some of us might have a conception that the Trinity, that God in three persons, is a New Testament idea, right? Like that's where we see the name of Jesus, and that's this. And, but, but actually, if you look to Genesis 1, we see the Trinity in the first three verses. Okay, so Genesis 1, 1, it says that in the beginning, God created. So that's referring to God the Father. And then verse 2 says um, that the Spirit of God hovered over the water. So that's referring to God, the Spirit, the the Spirit of God. And then verse 3, it says, and then God spoke, and he said, let there be light, let there be, and so he he goes on from there, right? So he spoke a word. Now in John 1, John helps us understand what what, what God was saying back in Genesis 1, and he says, um, in the beginning was the word, Again, word spoken to it. And the word, capital W, was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing um, was made that has been made. And then in John 1, 14, a few verses later, it says, The word became flesh. The word, God, um, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's crazy. I mean, we think the Trinity is like, Trinity might be a New Testament idea, but it's actually in the first page of your Bibles. And so we see that God created us to be in relationship with him and with others because we are made in his image and God is a community, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know that's kind of high up and you're like, I just thought you were going to start with a story and that's a little bit easier for me to understand, you know, but this is good for us to understand. We got to see that the Trinity of God is in the very beginning. Um, It's not a new idea. So this morning, we get to look at the second person of the Trinity, which is Jesus. Um, So if you want to open up your Bibles to Philippians 2, that's where we'll be this morning. Philippians 2. Now, If I asked you who Jesus is, who you think Jesus is, what would you say? Like if I said, hey, I want you to to, to maybe think of one or two words that you think describe the person of Jesus, what words would you use? Well, a year ago, I was on staff at City Light Church in Omaha, and so our staff team went to UNO's campus, and we wanted to figure out what students thought of who Jesus is. How, we wanted to see, how would you answer this question? So we had these big, like, wooden structures, and uh, they were like a chalkboard, like, paint on it. And so we had chalk, and everyone that walked by, we said, hey, would, would you mind writing down what you think, uh, just a word that you think describes Jesus? And so, I mean, everybody, just anybody that wouldn't write it down. So they wrote down, and I was amazed at some of the, the, the words that they wrote. It was Lord and Savior and revolutionary and grace and truth and peace and the way and life. And there was all of these beautiful words. But then there were some words written that were hard to swallow. Words like liar and fake and hate, criminal and enemy. 
And so as I looked at these boards uh, and, these, and the words that people use to describe Jesus, I realized that most of those people understand Jesus not by what the Bible says, but by the way Christians have treated them. Does that make sense? I think a lot of these people think that Jesus is hate because Christians have been hateful towards them or judgmental towards them. And man, as I heard stories uh, of people being excluded and like kicked out of church because they messed up or a way they acted or a way they dressed. And as I heard these stories, my heart just broke as I realized that I'm so guilty of not representing Jesus well. I've been selfish. I've been self-centered. I've taken advantage of people. I've been entitled, I've been judgmental, I've been all of these things, and all of that is the opposite of who Jesus is. He is full of grace, he gives honor, he loves people, he helps people, he's humble and he's constantly thinking about other people. Man, I'm guilty of only helping people that can help me back. I'm guilty of only loving people that are pretty easy to love, but Jesus loved the ones we would think are unlovable. Jesus went after and helped the people that couldn't help themselves and could never repay him for how he loved them. That's who Jesus is. And so if you're in the room and you follow Jesus, we can be honest that we haven't done a great job of representing him. And if you're in the room and you've been hurt by Christians, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm guilty of that. And and it's a serious thing. And though, though Christians should represent Jesus, we will never represent him perfectly. And so my invitation for all of this morning is to not define truth based on our experience, but based on the unswerving truth of God revealed in his Bible. Okay, so I know your experiences are hard, and I know you probably have some scars for maybe how Christians have treated you, but I pray, man, would we see Jesus in light of his Bible, that we're broken people, yet he has chosen to love us. Amen? So that's where we're going this morning. That's why this morning matters. And so Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is where we're going to be, and we're going to see four specific things that help us understand who this Jesus is. Okay, so very first, we'll start reading verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is God. Okay? Point one, Jesus is God. Now, verse five is the preface for the entire purpose of verses six through 11. So Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, the Philippians, saying that, if you claim to follow Jesus, then you should also aim to be like Jesus, right? Like we love someone, we want to be like them and be with them. And so in other words, um, he's saying, have this mind among you that is in Christ. So um, think of yourself the way that Jesus thought of himself, right? That's what he's encouraging us to do. And then verses 6 through 11 tell us who Jesus is, who this, what this mind is that we can emulate and actually respond to. All right. Now, when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's not specifically referring to Jesus's size or his shape, but to his essence. Okay, so Jesus is God by nature. He and the Father uh, have the same nature. And Hebrews 1, verse 3, defines Jesus this way. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of his power. 
And then Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the invisible God. Is that, um, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I heard a pastor call Jesus God in a bod, and I kind of liked it. I'm like, I will run with that, you know? So you just want to say Jesus is God in a bod, all right? That's easy enough. See, but before we go anywhere else, we have to realize this is foundational for us that Jesus is God. He's not simply a prophet. He's not simply a good person. He is God. And then Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 goes on to say, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in other words, Jesus' birth on earth um, wasn't the beginning of his life, okay? So Jesus' birth here on earth wasn't the beginning of his life. He has pre-existed as God before the beginning of time. Jesus created all things and is before all things. He is God. Uh, and this is specifically important as we finish verse 6 because Paul writes that though he is God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so this is another evidence that Paul is saying Jesus is God because he says he has equal status with God yet chooses not to take advantage of it. Does that make sense? So we're all on the same level there. Um, I want to ask, is anyone like a super frequent flyer? Like just shoot up your hand if you're just a really frequent flyer, if you fly a lot. Anybody? Got a little bit, just kind of like a halfway, like I fly a decent amount, but not frequent, you know? Uh, well, um, so I honestly don't like airports. I love arriving places. I'm all for that. But the process to get there isn't my favorite, and especially if it involves an airplane, okay? I don't like being up there. I feel crammed. I have no control. I'm a little bit nervous. Um, and so all that to be said, every time I get in an airport, though, um, as I'm walking through, we, we see these rooms that are, like, really fancy and really, really nice and, like, exclusive, and these fancy people walk in, and so they're usually, like, kind of closed, and so you can't see in there, and so I they open the door, and I kind of, like, peek in, like, what's what's in there? Like, oh, cool. Man, that's on, that's, I bet that'd be pretty fun uh, to go in there, but, you know, and so I'm, like, dreaming about what it, what's in there, and I'm like, man, I guarantee they have really fast internet. Like, they just have super fast, free internet. I'm like, I bet they have a fridge in there, and I bet it's stocked with chocolate milk, okay? And I oh, I bet there's pizza, and I guarantee there's Chipotle burritos, right? And I bet there's those chairs that you sit in, they just like massage you, and you just spend hours, and you don't even realize, you think it's like 10 minutes. You wake up, you're like, I missed my flight, but it's okay, because I got my massage chair, right? And I guarantee there's some pygmy goat magazines in there too. And so it's just like, my, I don't know, but it's kind of my dream of what I've been thinking this place is, right? This exclusive room. And so Kristen, my wife, and I uh, were sitting on the ground waiting for our next flight, getting crop dusted every five minutes, and, uh, and trying to, hey, serious, and then uh, trying to hack the internet to get it for free. I don't know. I'm just confessing. I don't know if that's okay. But anyways, we're trying to hack the internet, and this guy's going in, and I stop. I'm like, hey, bro, uh, how do you get in there? You know, and he kind of explained that it's his frequent flyer status. He's flown so much that he has a frequent flyer status. And so I like just kind of feel, I'm like really weirdly like submitted to him. Like I'm kind of nerd, like a peasant kind of like thing. I don't just felt like that. So I'm like, Gee, how, how, maybe, how would I kind of get in there? You know, he's like, oh dude, you're done. Yeah, not even a chance. I'm like, no, no, no. He said, you just have to fly a ton and spend a lot of money, which I don't have. Um, and so I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to. But anyways, maybe we'll create like a little room in the church that has some of that stuff. I don't know. But just some of my dreams. But imagine this man 
who is rightfully earned, who is a frequent flyer status and can spend all his time in this luxurious heaven-like room, but imagine him stopping and sitting down with the rest of us. Get that? Like he could be in there and it's easy, but he says, you know what? I actually don't want to go in there. I'm actually going to stay with you guys getting crop dusted every five minutes, right? It's not a good situation, but how crazy would that be? Like what? What, 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 you, oh, you want to hang out with us? You don't want to go in there? No, stay with you guys. What if he didn't use that status for himself? See, that's a great picture of what Jesus is doing for us. He has the metaphorical frequent flyer status that could go in ease, but chooses to not take advantage of that. And it's mind-blowing as we think about it. He sits with us. He, take, he doesn't take advantage of what is rightfully his. And so I just want us to see that Jesus is completely different than anyone in this room, than anyone in the history, than anyone else in the Bible. He's completely different. And so I want to compare and contrast Jesus with um, two other people in the Bible. One is Satan and the other one is Adam. And just show you how different Jesus is from these two people. So first, in Isaiah 14, it tells us that Lucifer, which is also known as Satan, was an angel but wanted to sit on the throne of God, okay? And then um, Ezekiel 28 tells us that he was once the highest of the angelic beings. He was so close to the throne of God, but he wanted to be on the throne of God. And so God cast him down from heaven. See, Satan wasn't satisfied to be the created. He wanted to be the creator, Yet Jesus is the creator and willingly became man with his creation. Do you see the difference? Do you see what Jesus did? Satan said, I will, but Jesus said, your will to the Father. They are completely different. And then Adam. Well, Adam had all that he needed in the garden. He was essentially the king uh, over, over earth. I mean, he, God gave him dominion over all things, and Adam was given everything he needed. But as Satan tempted him to eat the one fruit on earth he was forbidden to and to become like God, Adam grasped what was out of his reach and as a result let sin and death enter the human race. Now, Adam thought of himself, but Jesus thought of others. Adam wanted more than everything on earth, but Jesus gave up everything in heaven and gave it to us. Adam blamed Eve and the snake for his mistakes, but Jesus took the blame for our sins. See the difference? It's a very stark contrast between the two. So we must see that Jesus is God. He's not some distant, far-off deity in the sky. He's a personal God. He's a humble king that's unlike anything we've ever seen. And though he is God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let's look at verse 7 and see how it progresses. Paul writes, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men. So the second thing we see is that Jesus is a servant. Jesus is God, and Jesus is a servant. Now, Charles Spurgeon said that the word that best describes Jesus' life is humble, which I think is Profound, And so we see in verse 6 that Jesus is God, yet decided not to count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then in verse 7, Paul explains that Jesus emptied himself by becoming a servant. And this is really the epitome of what humility is. But there are two things I, I want to point out about humility. And the first thing that we have to know is that no one is naturally humble. Okay? No one in this room is naturally humble. 
A couple verses before in Philippians 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Right? So humility is an utmost commitment to think of others, which is perfectly expressed in Jesus. My wife is beautifully 39 weeks pregnant, a little bit plus. And so I was like waiting last gathering. Hey, if she calls, I'm out, you know? And so if this happens right here, there's some water on the ground. We got to go. All right. Uh, but yeah, we'll see what God does. So anyways, um, so she's 39 weeks pregnant. I can't wait to meet our little girl. I'm so excited, but I have begrudgingly submitted to the reality that she won't be perfect. And it's hard for me to, because she's going to be so beautiful and she can be just like her mom probably and nothing like her dad. But anyways, I've came to the grips that she won't be perfect. Her hunger will far outweigh Kristen's need for sleep, right? And and she doesn't care that of her dad's inability to change a diaper. She's just going to poop all day, right? She doesn't think of us. She's not thinking about our needs. And so her needs will often always come before ours. So even as babies, and even when she grows up, she's going to be selfishly thinking, I'm hungry. And if I don't get what I want, I'm going to cry, right? I'm going to throw some havoc here and everyone's going to be looking. Do you really want that in Walmart right now? Like that's what, that's what she's going. She doesn't care. She doesn't care for her in Walmart because she's hungry. And so all that to be said, um, we need to see that the naturally humble person doesn't exist. Okay? No one is naturally humble. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to see is that our culture sees humility as a weakness, right? So did you know that out of the strength finders test, there's 34 virtues and humility isn't one of them. Out of all of them, humility's not listed. It's seen as weakness in our culture. See, our culture champions people that constantly strive to be on the top and we'll do anything to get there. I mean, look at our presidential campaigns, right? Like humility seemed like a swear word or a distant cousin. Like it just wasn't in the midst of that. See, but Jesus, he's different. He laid aside his privileges. He didn't go into the frequent flyers exclusive room. He emptied himself and he sits with us. He's humble. He's a servant. So have you ever noticed as you read through the gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that it's always Jesus serving others and rarely ever the other way around. Like he just, he's at the beck and call of every kind of person, fishermen and prostitutes and and, and tax collectors and and the sick and the sorrowing and the ungrateful. And then in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, the son of man didn't come to be served. The son of man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, my mission's there. I didn't come so that you could serve me. I came so that I could serve you. He's a servant. And in the upper room, when his disciples apparently refused to serve, Jesus humbly gets down on his divine hands and feet and washes his disciples' dirty feet. One of them, Peter, that would deny him. The other, Judas, that would betray him. Yet Jesus humbly serves and washes their feet. He took the place of a menial servant. See, Jesus wasn't jarring for the top position. He was constantly lowering himself and serving the least of these. That's who our God is. But we've got to ask, if we're in the room, what does it mean for Jesus to empty himself, right? Like, we don't just want to assume that we know it and then it makes sense. Like, let's just explain and kind of walk through that. And so Paul explains that Jesus' emptying of himself was by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what we call incarnation. Incarnation literally translated means in flesh, 
Remember, God and Abad, right? That's like, that's incarnation. And so um, this is the act of God coming down to us as a man. But was Jesus like half God and half man? Was he like Hercules? Was he, did he just, was he not God at all when he came to earth? What, what was he? And I'm sure maybe most of us have thought through this. And so I just want to explain what the Bible says about Jesus and his divinity and his humanity. So we have to see that in the Bible, Jesus was fully human and fully God, right? So in looking at scripture, you can't avoid the paradoxical conclusion that Jesus was fully God and fully human, but that he also operated out of his divinity and his humanity, okay? Kind of bigger words. Basically, I'm saying Jesus is fully God, fully human, but in his life, he did things that a God could do, and then he did things that humans would do, right? So for his humanity, um, you see that uh, through the gospel, he grew physically and intellectually, right? Luke 2 talks about it, and so he was baby, had to experience growing pains, had to grow up and become who he was. He had to learn intellectually, learn words, and learn how to talk and move and all of that stuff. He didn't know certain things in Mark 13, and he ate and drank in Luke 7, okay? So Jesus displayed human characteristics, and then he also did many things that showed his divine power, okay? So when he knows people's thoughts in Luke 7, and when Peter would deny him, and he knew that Judas's betrayal was coming, so Jesus came as the Son of God in flesh, emptying himself and making himself susceptible with temptation, but he remained perfect because of the power of the Holy Spirit and his reliance on his relationship with the Father. That's how Jesus did it. So Jesus emptied himself and became man, but was still fully God. I know this is like, this is complex, tell another story, something like that. Well, I'm getting to it. Listen, I know this is confusing, uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a bigger thought, but think of Usain Bolt, okay? Fastest guy Mo thinks he's faster. I don't know why, but he thinks he's faster than you're saying. And so, um, any, anyways, this guy beats his opponents like it's nothing. Like he's walking, like he like looks back at him when he's finishing him, and it's wild. So he's the fastest man on earth right now. But imagine Usain Bolt in a three-legged race with somebody else. Him running, trying to do that. Now, would he still be the fastest man on earth? Yes, he would. Now, would he look like it? No, but he is still the fastest person on earth, but he's tied down to somebody else, and so he wouldn't look or operate like the fastest person in the world. You tracking with me? So in the same way, Jesus, though he remains fully God, he takes on humanity fully and is metaphorically tied down to the limits of a human body. This is the incarnation. Is that helpful? You get, like, you get track with that? It's, a, it's, it's been helpful for me to understand, kind of articulate that through a metaphor. And so we have to see that Jesus is a servant, but we also have to see that he came to serve us. That's why he came. And so um, you know how we all like to make our jobs sound a little bit cooler by the title? I mean, like, honestly, we're guilty of it. Like, you can try and say you don't do it, but I know you do. And, and so, um, uh, like, I'm a hydro-technical operator at a worldwide franchise, oh, so you wash cars at Ford in, in town? Like, that's what you do? Really? Like, that's what, that's what your title is right now? Yeah, that's what it is. Oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, I work in the business field, but I give a lot of my time to the crime scene. Oh, so you make burritos at Chipotle, but you're a volunteer deputy? 
they give you a badge? You get a flashlight with that, right? Like we try and do that. Or, or, or what about like I supervise, I supervise infants' behavior and write daily reports of, uh, reports of their activity. Oh, so you're a babysitter and you just leave a note on how the kids did? Like that's, that's what we're trying to go with right now. Like we always do it and we always want that. Like I don't know why. We love promotions. We love big titles and we love bigger offices. It's just, in, uh, it's just kind of who we are. But Jesus is so different than us. He's humble and he serves. But I want, I want us to look at Jesus's self-demotions. Okay, as we're drawing for the top, Jesus is constantly demoting himself lower and lower and lower. And so first, Jesus is God, right? He's God, but he demotes himself to man. He comes down as a man. That's a massive gap that he took, but he came down as a man. But he didn't just come as a man. He came as a poor baby, right? So he goes even lower. And he didn't just come as a poor baby. He came as a servant, right? He's washing feet. So he's even lower. God to man, man to baby, baby to servant. He didn't just come as a servant, but he came to die, okay? That's the reason he came to die. And he didn't just die of like old age or something like that. He came to die by execution and a death on the cross. The lowest place you could possibly be, beaten, mocked, stripped, naked, and, and on the cross, Jesus was there. The Son of God, lowered himself all the way to the lowest spot we could possibly imagine. He demoted himself constantly lower and lower and lower. And so while most of us pounce at every opportunity to move up the social and cultural ladder, Jesus is constantly lowering himself in order to serve us and to save us. Do you see that? How beautiful he is? But now let's look at verse eight and see the point of Jesus coming as man and serving us. Philippians 1.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the third thing we see is that Jesus is a sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice. Now, if someone asks you to do something for them, what's your first response? Mine is usually, well, what is it? You know, I don't want to say yes because I got in a trap with a couple of my friends. They asked me some big things and I had to do them. So anyway, I'm like kind of conscious of, you just tell me what you want before I say yes, because it could be something crazy. Um, and so I want to make sure that it's not too costly, right? I want to make sure that it's not going to cost me too much. And so we love helping people, but if there's a price, especially if it's a high price, we seem to lose interest pretty quick, right? That's normally our natural tendency. In Romans 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not the good, not the, the helping, not the, um, not the givers, but the sinner. As we're in our sin, the depth of our sin, Christ chose, I want to die for you. The ultimate price, dying for you. Now, when I've asked people um, who Jesus is, the most common response I get is that he's a good teacher or a good person, okay? And you might say that too, and I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. He is a wonderful person, an amazing teacher, but Jesus didn't primarily come to teach us lessons and be an example. He came to be a sacrifice. We have to understand that when God saw the hopeless sin problem that you and I have, the solution wasn't more rules, more encouragement, more teaching. No, we needed a substitute, a perfect sacrifice. Someone that could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. 
Now we've got to come to grips with the fact that we have all sinned, right? We do wrong things and we do right things for the wrong reasons. And in Romans 6, 23, um, Paul says that the penalty for our sins is death, which is eternal separation from God. Now, we saw last week, Bob was explaining that God protects us and he provides for us all for the purpose of being in relationship with us, okay? But in our sin, we've all gone astray and we've refused his protection. We've taken advantage of his provision and we've ran away as orphans from a loving father. That's what we've done in our sin and we're all guilty of it. See, there's no hope in ourselves We can't fix this sin problem. We can't somehow get better. In the Old Testament, God instituted a sacrificial system, okay? Um, So when people would sin, they would bring an animal, sacrifice the animal, and then God would forgive them of their sins. Sounds pretty good, right? Like you just kind of go through measures. But then the next day they sin, and they got to go back and do it again. And they do it again and again and again, and it's a never-ending cycle of trying to pay for our sins, and we can't do it. It's not in us to continue to do it. What we need was a perfect sacrifice that would pay for all of our sins forever. And the word that, that, that we use is atone, uh, to atone for, which is to, it's a theological word and it means to pay for a debt that is owed. Okay, so we needed someone to atone for us to pay our debt. But no animal could do that. No animal could perfectly pay for our debt. But what about a person? Well, we just said that everyone's guilty. So a guilty person can't die for another guilty person and somehow make them innocent. It doesn't work like that either. And so through this hopeless state, God promised that he would send a person to bear our wounds and be punished for our transgressions. He would atone for us. He would pay our debts. That was his promise to us. And in Hebrews 10 in the New Testament, 12 through 14, he writes, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He died once for all, and the way we receive this sacrifice isn't by being better, isn't by cleaning ourselves up, isn't by finally coming to church and finally inviting people and doing all of these things. No, the way we receive this sacrifice on our behalf is to place our full faith in his sufficient sacrifice. The old hymn goes, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's our boast. See, our confident song in the banner over this church isn't, look what I've done. It's look what Jesus has done. Our boast isn't, well, look what all I've given to God. No, it's look at what God has given to me. Amen? That's our boast. That's what our church is about. Jesus doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. He's the hero of our story. He's the hero of our church, and he's the hero of our lives. The only way we have salvation is by trusting in the finished, perfect work of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus, God himself, willingly took the most painful death so that you and I could live. On the cross, he got what we deserve. Did you know that the word excruciating actually came from the crucifixion? 
that's how that word was created. It was the most painful, embarrassing way to die. The Romans were, were amazing in, 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 in trend-setting for pain and punishment, and Jesus received all of it. But his death isn't the end of our story. Look at what happens in, in, in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name, um, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The last thing we see is that Jesus is a risen king. So Jesus is God, Jesus is a servant, Jesus is a sacrifice, and lastly, Jesus is a risen king. So God himself, Jesus, as a human, breathed his last breath, and he died. So the most hopeless day in all of history, he was assured to be dead, taken down, and then buried in a tomb. But three days later, Jesus rose, defeating sin, death, and Satan. He proved that he was our all-sufficient sacrifice. And listen, any man could die and claim that he was dying for the sins of the world, but Jesus wasn't simply a martyr. He was a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice. So when men buried the body of Jesus, that was the last thing any human hands did to him. From that point on, it was God who worked. Men had done their worst to our Savior, but God has exalted him. Men gave him slanderous ridicule and names, but God gave him the highest name over every other name, Jesus. Though he became the lowest, God exalted him to the highest, and now he sits victorious on the throne of heaven forevermore. That's who Jesus is. And see, this king died for his people, but death couldn't hold him down. He is our risen king, and these verses tell us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And listen, this is wild to think about because right now we're in a grace period where we can voluntarily bow our knee to Christ and confess that he is Lord and receive mercy and love and grace. But this says that there will be a time when everyone will bow to him. And on that last day, if people wait until that last day to bow, they won't receive love and mercy and grace. They'll receive wrath and punishment and eternal separation from God. That's why this mission is urgent. That's why we can't just sit back and be lazy about telling people about the love of Jesus. And I know, I know, I know this sounds like horrible news, and that is horrible news, but the better news is that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We deserve wrath and punishment, but God would take it for us, and so by simple faith, we can receive Jesus' grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. The news is bad, but the good news is better. You don't have to try and be the hero of your story anymore. You don't have to try and act like you've got it put together. You don't have to try and act like your life is great and everything's perfect and you haven't failed. You can acknowledge that you failed, yet God has loved you in your failure. We're free to confess we're weak because Jesus has been strong. We're free to confess that we failed because Jesus is our success. You can bow a knee to Jesus, humble yourself, and call on him as Lord and Savior of your life. You don't have to wait to get better. You just have to have faith that Jesus is God, 
He came as a servant and came to die on your behalf and he did die, but then God raised him up and now he has the name that's more precious and high than any other name. I wrote a poem uh, to condense some of the beautiful truths of this passage. So I'll share it with you guys and then um, we'll take communion and continue and sing together. This king isn't like any other king. This love isn't like anything I've ever seen. Existing in the form of God, yet laid the privilege aside to enter a world filled with hate, lust, and pride. This wasn't a vacation on the beach or a journey for rest. It was a mission to remove sin as far as the east is from the west. Not a quest to gather the good, to put together the ones that had it figured out. His face was set on sinners, the broken, the down and out. They called him Jesus, the friend of sinners, but he gladly took it as a compliment. For that was the very reason he was sent. But to seek and save the lost would have an unthinkable cost. See, this king isn't like any other king. This love isn't like anything I've ever seen. No place to lay his head. This servant king didn't require a king-sized bed. Friends that would deny and betray, crowds that would come just to take, yet faithfully he washes the feet of sinful men who would deny that they were even his friend. Steadfast, unshaken, he sets his face towards a cross to seek and save that which is lost. And this king died. Not of old age, not of cancer or sickness, he died because he picked us. And the cancer that separated us from God, it had no cure, no special pill, but where sin ran deep, God's love ran greater still. A substitute would be the only way that the penalty of our sin could be paid. But not just anyone could volunteer. We needed someone perfect, blameless, perfectly sincere. And I can just picture it in heaven, our king saying, I'll go. For them, I'll go. See, this king isn't like any other king. This love isn't like anything I've ever seen. From heaven to earth, from glory to shame, from master to servant, from pleasure to pain, from praise on the angel's lips, the enemies shout and people spit. Save yourself if you're really God, the people shout. But he quietly suffered knowing the absurdity of these doubts. I could call an army of angels down to grant your request, but if I save myself from death, my life would be meaningless. And these very people he came to save, not to motivate to clean ourselves up or behave, and this king died. But see, the grave couldn't hold him. Three days later, and Jesus did what he told them. Oh, death, where is your sting? Our victory is in the love of the risen king. See, this king isn't like any other king. This love isn't like anything I've ever seen. So may we respond to this love of the most extravagant measure and make Jesus our true, our lasting, our eternal treasure. May every knee bow and every tongue confess that we can finally stop searching and finally rest. For there's a king that rules with grace and peace and mercy that will extend his love to all who are thirsty. There's no hope in ourselves. We needed a king. And Jesus came, so to him we bow our knees and sing.